Thank you for listening to a message from the Bowden Church of Christ. For more information, visit www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. That's www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Bowden Church of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing to you and helps you to serve God and find satisfaction in Him alone. And now, our speaker. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see everybody tonight. Go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to have to be easy with my voice tonight. I feel it slowly slipping away, and so uh, maybe we won't have to cut the sermon early. Uh, Maybe it'll hold out, but it's good to see everybody tonight. I don't know if it's the pollen or what. I I told somebody I I could have absolutely guaranteed that I saw pollen on my windshield the other day. So we're at least getting close to that time. Um, so, uh, but it's good to see everybody. It's a beautiful day. The sun, I, I miss on Sunday nights during the winter when the sun comes through the window. If I go back and watch a sermon from the summer, I'll see the sun coming through the window. I'll think, man, I, I, I miss the time when the sun was still up when we got out. So, um, hopefully we're getting closer to that time. Appreciate everybody's participation in the marriage class today. I felt it was very profitable. A lot of really good discussion went on, and we had a couple of visitors in the in the online uh, portal, so it was good to have them in there, and I appreciate all your participation. I promised you two Sunday nights ago that we were going to do another Q&A tonight because, um, you know, the fourth Sunday night of this Uh, of the month for this year is reserved for uh, other individuals, men or young men in the congregation to come up and present lessons to us. But we haven't started that sermon prep class yet, and so I haven't asked any of them to prepare lessons as of yet. So we're going to use this fourth Sunday night this month to answer some more questions. And I promised you I would do that, so I wanted to fulfill on that promise. I've got two questions for you tonight. Uh, two of which that I, I feel, um, you know, were submitted at a uh, good time. Uh, I love these two questions. I'm very passionate about both of these subjects, and so uh, I'm very excited to share these questions with you. And it uh, fits just right in with one of the songs that Mike led, and you'll see that in just a moment. Here's our two questions for the night. Question number one is this. If we don't earn our salvation and God continually forgives us of our sins... What would cause us to lose it? A sin that we don't ask forgiveness for? Sins of omission? I understand there's not a checklist, but what? It's question number one. I think it's a great question. Question number two is this. This is the one that goes with uh, Mike's lesson. I promised you a couple of, I think in the first month that I would answer this. Why do some people think celebrating Jesus' birth on Christmas is a sin, and then other people do it? Is it a sin? When was Jesus actually born? So we're going to spend some time addressing both of those questions tonight. Let's begin with question number one. If you and I don't earn our salvation and God continually forgives us of our sins, what would cause us to lose our salvation? A sin that we don't ask forgiveness for, sins of omission. I understand there's not a checklist, but what? At the heart of this question, I think, is something that every Christian at some point in their walk in faith, and some of us frequently through our walks of faith, struggle with. What is it that I could do that would turn God's back on me? What is it that would cause me to go from having an eternal home in heaven to having an eternal home in hell? How could I lose the salvation that I enjoy as a Christian today? What would it take? 
I think every Christian has asked this question. If you haven't asked it yet, you probably will soon. So I want to address that. The first thing I want to do, though, is, is address the two assumptions that are made at the beginning of the question, because there may be a case that somebody in here may not understand these two statements, that um, we don't earn our salvation and God continually forgives us. I want to establish those two points, because within those points is the answer to our ultimate question. The first statement that's made is, if we don't earn our salvation... Now, I don't know exactly what your view or thoughts are as far as Scripture is concerned, but the statement that is made at the beginning of this question is 100% correct. And that's why I asked you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Look down with me at verses 8 and 9, a very popular passage amongst people that just claim to be a Christian in Christianity as a whole, especially in religion as a whole. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. You and I, in no way, shape, form, or fashion, earn our way into heaven. There's no merit system that we can participate in that would classify us to be a, a people that have earned our way into heaven, that we've earned a spot there. We have worked hard enough to gain a spot in heaven. Our salvation was purchased at the cross, and you and I have one option and one option only, and it is an option of response. You and I have the option, either I'm going to respond to what Jesus did, or I'm going to give a non-response and ignore what Jesus did. Now, we often call these faith responses, and these are the things we talk about in the plan of salvation. You have to hear the Word of God, you have to believe it, you have to repent, you have to confess, and you have to be baptized, and then you need to live to walk as God would have you to walk. Now, let me emphasize this extremely clearly, probably as extremely clearly as I possibly can be, to say that a response is a work that earns salvation is to water down and make a laughing stock of what Jesus did on the cross. To say that a work may earn us into heaven. You've probably heard somebody say, well, y'all believe baptism is a work. You're, it's a merit-based or it earned salvation. To say that walking up a set of stairs and going down into a pool of water in some way merits me a spot in heaven is crazy. That is one of the most simplistic and easy things God has ever asked us to do. And if that's all it takes to earn a spot into heaven, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. What Jesus did merits us the opportunity to respond that way so that we can then be saved by what he did. So to say that any response to God is some kind of work would lessen the meaning of what Jesus did. If all I had to do was go into some water, or all I had to do was say some sort of chant or statement, then Jesus' sacrifice is pointless. But no, what I had to have done was live perfect, and Jesus did that for me. So my response is through faith and obedience. The second statement here, faith, uh, no faith response earns or merits salvation. I wanted to put that up. The second statement here is... If you and I don't earn our salvation, we can't earn a way into heaven. That, that's, I mean, that should take some pressure off of you, too. I mean, you, there's no amount of good deeds you're going to do to get to heaven. And that's just the reality of it. That should take some, some of the pressure off, you know, the expectation. With that statement being made, the second one is, if we don't earn our salvation and God continually forgives our sins, 
The Bible teaches me that God on an unchanging and an unadulterated process continually cleanses my sins. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 because this statement is 100% correct that God continually cleanses my sins. 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. And uh, let, let's read these passages real quick together. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 1 beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that means that we're saved. We're righteous before God. We have fellowship. While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What the Bible tells me in these passages here is verse 5, there's no darkness in God. Now the idea of darkness is a parallel to the idea of sin in the Bible. No sin in God. God makes no moral mistakes. He makes no lapses in judgment. He does nothing that would require him to change his character. God has no sin. There's no darkness in God. Verse 6 tells me that you and I cannot walk in darkness. Now, if you follow the word walk in the Bible, you'll learn that the word walk is a parallel or a synonym for the word live. I cannot live in sin, verse 6, and say that I have fellowship with God. If I do, I'm lying. I'm, I'm not doing what God would want me to do. I can't live in sin. That is, my life is given over to sin. I am living in sin all the time. I don't care. I'm not really trying to change. I keep committing that sin over and over. That's what it means to live in sin. So if I live in sin or I walk in darkness, I can't say that I'm right before God. But verse 7 if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, verse 7 is of specific interest to me, because if you look at these two phrases here in verse 7, walk in the light and cleanses us from all sin, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and then the phrase, he cleanses us from all sin, both of these words are what we would call present participles. Those present participles are essentially continuous action. I'm, it would be like me saying, I am preaching. Well, that means I am doing it right now. It is a continuous action, okay? I am preaching now. That's what a present participle would be like in this text. If we walk in the light, that's a continuous action. The rule of my life is that I'm going to live according to what the Bible says. The rule of my life is that I'm going to try to please God. He says if that happens, then he cleanses us from all sin. Now let me point out, it's the same idea. It's a continuous action. God cleanses us of our sins in a continuous way. When you and I are striving to live for him, the flow of the blood of Jesus does not stop. Now, it's like standing under a waterfall. 
right? That's how we've described it before, and I've described it to you that way in a sermon that I did on this text. When I am walking in the light, it's as if I'm standing under a waterfall of the blood of Jesus, and it is constantly hitting me. When I sin, that blood constantly and immediately washes me of my sin because I am walking in the light. That's what 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 says. So as a Christian, the Bible teaches me that I am continually cleansed of my sin. Now, that means that I am striving to do right. That doesn't mean that I won't sin, and we'll get to that in just a moment. There are actually two other passages that are of specific interest to me in this section. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when we talk about the continual cleansing of Jesus' blood. And uh, this is something I've tried to wade through as just a Christian, trying to understand this principle. It's kind of complicated to really figure out the parameters of all of this. But let me just show you what these passages say. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Anyone who is in Christ, this is verse 17, is a new creation. That is, if you've been saved, you're made into something new. Okay, verse 17, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God. Remember, you don't earn your salvation. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, notice this next statement not counting their trespasses against them. When you and I are a new creation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is contingent on us walking in the light, right? I have to walk in the light. God doesn't count your sins against you. The Bible says the same thing in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You and I, when we're striving to serve God, please, please understand this. Because for years and years, people preach this different. And I've been hearing people really get it right lately. When you and I are walking in the light, God does not count your sin against you. He washes you instantaneously from your sin. And you remain permanently right before God. He's constantly washing us. Now, let's move on to the rest of this question because the question begs the next idea. If you and I don't earn salvation, we don't earn it. We don't merit it to ourselves. We can't build up a bank of, of enough money to be able to purchase it. It's not merited. And God is constantly washing up us of our sin. What would, what would require me to do? What, what, what would I be required to do to lose that salvation. Now here's the heart of the question. What would be required of me to lose my salvation? The answer to this question is something that I've thought about, struggled with, and you probably have too at some point in your life. And here's my answer. I think that you will begin to fall away from God when you stop worrying and caring about whether or not your sin is, is separating you from God. When you stop worrying about it, when you stop asking, am I outside of God's grace? H have I sinned against God and, and done something wrong? Could God count a sin against me? When I stop worrying about that, when I stop caring about it, when I stop trying to put up roadblocks to keep sin away, when I stop trying to overcome sin, folks, that's the point where you're in trouble. That's the point where things begin to get a little iffy. I don't know the exact tipping point. I don't think the Bible 
points it out to us. There's one of two spectrums on the gamut. I'm either trying to live for God or I'm trying to live for the world. And if you're being honest with yourself, you know which category you fall into. You're either, the rule of your life is either that you're trying to serve God or the rule of your life is that you really don't care and you're not trying to. And the Bible tells me when I am trying to serve God, when I am genuinely living faithful to God, God does not count my iniquity against me. Now that's not to say I can't lose my salvation. I can. But when I'm, I'm not worrying, when I stop trying to follow God, when I stop worrying about whether or not I'm saved, I think it's then I begin to fall from grace. Now, one of the common misconceptions we get, and I think this may be the heart of this question, is that we think when I'm saved, my sins are washed away. And then I say something I shouldn't and I fall from grace. And then I repent of that and I'm brought back into grace. And then I think something I shouldn't and I fall from grace. And then I repent of that and I'm brought back into grace. The Bible nowhere teaches me that the Christian life is up and down like that. In grace, out of grace. In grace, out of grace. In fact, the Bible teaches me the exact opposite. That I am in grace until I turn away from grace. And God's blood... Jesus' blood is constantly washing me. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't repent of sin. The Bible tells us there. We need to confess our sin. The word confess just means to acknowledge. I'm just going to acknowledge my sin. I know that that's sin. When I stop saying, I shouldn't have done that. Josh, what were you thinking, man? Why'd you do that? When I stop thinking that, I believe then I've run into the area where I'm in trouble. Now, let me give you a couple of practical things here to look out for. These are some things to look out for, and then we'll move into question number two about Christmas. It's probably one y'all are waiting for, right? Question about Christmas, okay? Here's a couple of things to watch out for. Number one, I need to watch out for deliberate sin. That's Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, when the Hebrew writer says that if we go on sinning willfully, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. A deliberate or a willful sin is when I choose to sin, I plan to sin, I pursue sin, I set up systems to where I know I can sin without being caught. That's deliberate sin. And that is a moment, I believe, when we have fallen from grace because we don't care anymore. We're choosing sin over God, and we're coming to that sin, and we're pre-planning to sin. We're doing everything we can to make sure that we can sin. That's a deliberate sin. And Hebrews 10.25 says that that deliberate sin makes there no longer be a sacrifice for my sins, which, folks, is kind of a hefty statement. Okay? The second thing to look out for is when I stop believing God and I start trusting the world more. And that's Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What leads me to fall away from God is when I stop actually believing God. That's what happened to Israel in the wilderness, remember? We talked about them this morning. They stopped believing God. God wasn't going to take care of them and bring them into the land of Canaan. They didn't believe he could. They had given up on God. They had stopped believing the promises of God. When you and I stop believing the promises of God and we start trusting the promises of the world, we are falling away from the living God. So what could cause me to lose my salvation? When I stop worrying, when I stop trying to do better, when I stop trying to get back up on the horse and ride again, when I give up, I am in danger. Now, you're going to make mistakes. Please understand that. You are going to sin. The Bible seems to teach me that within every one of us is this relentless desire to rebel against what God has said. 
I want to. I do it. And every one of us can, we can relate to that. But at the same time, that desire does not have to fully control me. I can return back to God, and the blood of Jesus constantly washes me. That's what makes him better than bulls and goats. You don't have to wait to confess at an altar in order to be forgiven. You know, if you commit a sin and you say in your head, I shouldn't have done that, and you're trying to walk in the light of God, did you know God forgives you when you commit that sin? It, God doesn't forgive you when you come down to the front aisle. That's just like a, a public confession if you need support. Now, if he can, I mean, if you get convicted in the middle of a sermon, yeah, you need to come down and confess. But right, if you get convicted that you've done something wrong and you need to change, guess what? It's gone. You're a one who's blessed against which God is counting no iniquity. I think that's a beautiful thing. That you and I aren't in grace, out of grace, in grace, out of grace, in grace, out of grace. I better hope I prayed for my sin before I go to bed because if I die, I'll go to hell. It's not the way the Bible works. It's not the way salvation works. If I'm in grace, God is forgiving me. And remember, when he forgives me, God throws my sin in the depth of the sea, never to be brought up again. Okay? Question number one is done. I almost asked you all if you had questions, but this is a sermon, not a Bible class. Okay, all right, let's move on to question number two. I guess I got into Bible class mode. Question number two. This is the one uh, that I'm, I'm pretty uh, excited about. I'm pretty sure someone put this in this box because they knew that I kind of have some ideas about this, and I'll share them with you during this answer to this question. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I'm going to be fair, try to be consistent, and uh, answer this. Why do some people think celebrating Jesus' birth on Christmas is a sin, and other people do it? Is it a sin? When was Jesus actually born? Now, here's an important reality for you and I to remember. We have no idea when Jesus was born. No clue. I have heard compelling arguments on both sides of that aisle. I've heard compelling arguments for people to say it was more in the springtime. They make some pretty compelling arguments as far as the climate was concerned. I've also heard some people make compelling arguments about the way the calendar shifted throughout history, that it probably was closer to December 25th. We have no idea. And you know what? It's not really for us to know, is it? It's not pointed out in Scripture, so we don't really have to know when Jesus was born. When you do some investigation, you will find this very point. Nobody knows. And people really openly admit that they don't know. A lot of people that celebrate Christmas as Jesus' birth will openly say, we don't think he was born on Christmas. And so, you know, we kind of characterize those people as they're celebrating because they believe that's the day he was actually born. Some people do. But a lot of people that I've met don't because they say, well, history tells us we don't really know when he was born. There's no actual evidence that we can lean on with real solid Proof. So let me answer the looming question that's at the beginning of this, and then I'll give you the reasons why I answer it this way. Is celebrating Jesus' birth on Christmas a sin? No. Now, you may disagree with that. You may have been brought up to disagree with that, and if you disagree, that's fine. You can bring some arguments after services, and we can talk about it. But I don't think it's a sin. Let me explain to you why. First of all, a sin is a transgression of God's law. That means I have taken God's law and I have done the opposite of what God's law says. I have gone far beyond what God's law says. I have broken God's law. And to be just really honest with you, God doesn't say much about this area of law. There's not a lot of laws about the celebration of days. I'll mention a couple of verses later that speak to it. Now let me state, I've never really understood the celebration side of this idea. Okay. To me, it, it really would seem odd to celebrate the birth of Christ as if I'm celebrating someone's birthday. 
Even though it seems odd to me, though, I still can't tell you it, it seems sinful. I don't find any justification to point out it's sin, and I'll show you why in just a moment. I do know that there are probably some people out there that, like, get a birthday cake and make it for Jesus. And, I mean, could you imagine those candles? Good grief. <laughs> 2,000 candles, if you really think that. That's a lot of candles. I know there's probably some people that make a birthday cake for them, and I've probably seen things to that effect at some point. But most people that I've interacted with don't actually celebrate Jesus' birth. What they do is they just have this time set aside where they remember it, and they focus back on it. And I'm sure that some people have gone a little above and beyond, but to me, it, it still just seems odd to celebrate that birthday as, as far as a celebration of a birthday. I'll talk about that more in a minute. Now, why do I say that it's not a sin? Well, let me give you some evidences. I'm not just going to say this without giving you something to back it up. Let me tell you that this subject kind of demands consistency. We've got to be consistent, and that's one of the areas that we always have to evaluate as Christians. Are we being consistent in every area of life? Right? Uh, that's a big question that we all have to answer about COVID right now. Are we being consistent? The way we're acting in certain situations, are we acting the same in others? Same thing with this subject. Are we being consistent about what we believe about this? Because I think we have to have some pretty similar line of reasoning. There are things that we do as Christians that we fully accept that we we look at that reasoning and say it's okay, but then we look at the Christmas question and it's the same line of reasoning, but we say it's not okay. Well, let me explain to you what I mean. The first one is this. I, I'm really convinced, and this has just been from my experience, and this is not really towards any person. This has been my experience over the years as a, as a person who grew up in the church. I'm really convinced that many people say it's a sin, that it's a transgression of God's law. Like, like it would send somebody to hell to do this because they've just always heard that it was. They've always heard people preach that it was. That's my conviction, and that may not be true for you if you believe that. But I think that's kind of the approach that I've seen in my history of growing up in the church, that people view this this way because they've kind of always heard it to be that way. And let me give you some what I hope is logical reasoning behind the consistency of this. First of all, many of you may actually celebrate events that are not biblically sanctioned. Okay, uh, for instance, I know a lot of people that celebrate what they call their spiritual birthday. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think once a year, if you want to sit down and remember, you know what, at this time, 5, 10, 15 years ago, I made the decision to become a Christian. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I think that could be an extremely spiritually encouraging practice to say, you know, I made this decision 10 years ago to obey Christ. I'm so glad that I made this Decision, And you remember annually the baptism that you had that made you a new person. We talk about it. It's a new birth, right? So we may could view it as a birthday in some sense of the word. And I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating that. I, I don't uh, personally do that often. I have done that before. But I would never tell someone that they're sinning by doing that. And I, I think you would probably be hard-pressed to say that to someone as well, that they would sin by celebrating something that's actually not sanctioned. Because the Bible never tells us to remember the day of our salvation. It never tells us to have an annual celebration of that. But I tell you what, folks, if there's anything to celebrate, the day you became a Christian probably is better than the day you were born. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to celebrate something, it's worth celebrating. Probably rather celebrate when you became a new born-again Christian than a born-again baby. It's probably a little bit more logical. But no, nevertheless, I digress from that. 
Now, many people will argue that the reason we should not look at Christmas as the, as the birthday of Jesus and celebrate it as such is because it isn't actually Jesus' birthday. Again, I already pointed out that you don't know when it is. It very well could be December 25th. It very well may not be. We don't know. First of all, none of us knows. And second of all, I know that none of you have ever celebrated a birthday or an anniversary on a day other than it when it actually occurred, have you? You've never actually said, well, we're busy this weekend, so we'll celebrate our anniversary next weekend. Well, no, we've never thought that that logic fit into any other scenario. So it, in my opinion, wouldn't fit into this one. It doesn't matter what the day is. What, what matters is the remembrance of what we're thinking about. We do this with anniversaries. We do this with birthdays. We do this with all kinds of stuff. How many of you had to change your Christmas plans this year? Something that you thought uh, the patriarchs and the matriarchs of your family would roll over if you changed the day they have Christmas. Guess what? They probably did this year, didn't they? Some things about your family traditions may have changed. Well, did it make it different because you didn't celebrate on the actual day? No. Because the point of Christmas and Thanksgiving is not about the actual day, is it? It's about the fact that you're getting together with the people you love. And I think that would be the same logic we could use here if we did say that we wanted to do that. Again, let me point out that uh, I don't necessarily celebrate Christmas as Jesus' birth. I, I'm, I'm not trying to politic that we do that here. I'm just trying to use common sense and logic in answering this question. We also say that the Bible doesn't give us authorization to do this, right? We don't celebrate it because the Bible doesn't tell us to. And I've heard this argument many times. Yet at the same time, you and I, we have Bible classes. The Bible never tells us that Bible class. We have vacation Bible school. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. We have an extra time to take communion on Sunday night, but you're not going to find that anywhere. We have Wednesday nights, and you won't find that a lick of a place in the Bible to meet together at 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Even though we don't have a biblical authorization to do this, why do we do it? Because it's helpful. It's useful. It's expedient for us to accomplish something that we think is necessary. Why do the elders choose for us to have Wednesday nights? Because it's good for you to be with your church family in the middle of the week. I mean, good grief, you give so much time to everything else, let's give another hour to our church family. It's not that big of a sacrifice, really. They chose that because it was useful, not because God commanded it in the Bible but because it was useful. In fact, you could argue we do it because it's a tradition. You would be hard-pressed to find a church in many areas that don't meet at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. You would be hard-pressed to find a church in any, any of our areas, uh, a few probably, this is getting less popular, but that don't meet at 10 and 11 or 9 and 10 and then 5 or 6 on Sunday night. We have pretty much the same schedules. Why? It's tradition. That's what we've always done. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us any of that, and sometimes we hold to it tightly, but we use that line of reasoning with this question. And we say, well, the Bible doesn't say we could do it. Well, then we're going to have to change a lot of things if we're going to follow that same line of reasoning. Other people will say that we're going beyond the Bible to do something that God has not commanded us to do. This is kind of in the same vein as the last statement, but not really. Esther chapter 9, if you'll remember, after the people of Israel had been chosen by God to be saved, but we don't read God choosing them. We know he's there behind the scenes because Esther is a book of providence. And Esther saves the people of Israel. They set up what is called the Feast of Purim. Now, please understand, Jews, even to today, celebrate the Feast of Purim. John chapter 5 and verse 1, you can make a very good argument that Jesus celebrated the Feast of Purim. 
But God never told us to celebrate it. God never said to celebrate Purim. That was completely a man-made celebration for a spiritual event. You see, if we use that same logic, we would have to condemn the people that celebrated Purim. And still even, we have people that may protest that it cannot be celebrated because the depictions of Jesus' birth are inaccurate. The wise men in the nativity scene, the people that traveled from far away, the timeline seems a little bit off. Here's really where I want to demand consistency. If we're going to say that things have to be naturally and accurately depicted, we are all headed to hell for using these things. These are called felt boards. And you want to know what the people looked like that we put on felt boards? White men from Boston. <laughs> now, none of these men are actually Middle Eastern, but that's who they depicted, right? But we didn't have a problem with that when we used felt boards, did we? It didn't matter. It didn't matter if they were white, if they were black, if they were dark-skinned, if they were medium-skinned. None of that mattered. Why? Because it was the purpose behind it. We wanted to teach. So let me kind of conclude all this by saying this. The entire Christmas idea just begs consistency. That's really all that it begs. I have no problem with singing joy to the world on other days in the year besides Christmas. I would have no problem with us having services on December 25th singing joy to the world. No problem with that. Silent night, oh holy night, any of those during Christmas. I'd have no problem with teaching on the birth of Jesus on the day or the weekend or the week of Christmas. Just like I have no problem with teaching on it tonight in the middle of, well, the end of February. No problem teaching on it in March, April, June, July, August. I'd teach on it in November, December. I'd teach on it again in January. No problem with that. Why? Because we know that it's nothing. We know that people remember this as some kind of way to take their mind back. We also need to remember that when many people in the world are talking about Jesus, we got to stop telling them to be quiet and that they're wrong. If somebody wants to talk about Jesus, folks, we better sit down and say, you know what? I would love to talk to you about Jesus. This guy you're remembering that he was born, let me tell you a little bit about what he did for you on the cross. His birth is really cool. And there's a lot of prophecies that are fulfilled when he was born. But I tell you what, his death is even cooler. Can I share with you a little bit about how Jesus died for you? Our attitude towards that should probably be a little bit more about sharing the Savior that we love. Now, I'll often make a confession to you. Around Easter time, I, I reflect on the resurrection. I can't help but do it. Everybody's talking about it. I see it all over Facebook. I see it all over the news. I mean, good grief, the news talks about how Jesus rose from the dead. If any Christian should rejoice, that's a time to rejoice. The world is actually acknowledging that Jesus rose from the dead in some way. That's a great thing. Around Christmas, I can't help but think back on the birth of Jesus. Not because the Bible tells me to or because I think it's a sin, but everyone's talking about it. And whenever I talk about something, I reflect back on it. I think about it. It's in front of me. So let me ask a question. Are we going to have a nativity scene here on the table come December this year? No. We're not going to put one up. Um, are we going to you know, put a Christmas tree out in the lobby? There's a whole other issue around Christmas trees. Maybe we can talk about it later time. But, you know, are we going to do that? No. I don't really see a, a point in, in doing that. But am I going to say that someone's going to go to hell for doing that? Not a chance. I wouldn't dare begin to step in that area and say that that is a sin that transgresses the law of God. Anytime somebody talks about Jesus, it's a good thing. Because we can take what they know and lead them into the truth of Jesus. Isn't that what Paul did when he went to Athens? He looked around and he said they had all these gods and they even had a statue to an unknown God. And he said, this unknown God, here's the guy I want to talk to you about. This is the God of heaven. 
And he began to tell them about God making the world and how he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands and how he's the God of the universe and how his son Jesus is the one they should turn to. You know, some people didn't believe him, but he took people where they were and he brought them to Jesus. Maybe the case is tonight that Jesus hasn't been a major part of your life. I asked you the question this morning, how much of a difference does Jesus make to you? I hope you thought about that. And maybe you've thought that Jesus hasn't really made that big of a difference to me. Jesus has not really made a huge difference in my life, and I want him to. I want my sins to be forgiven. The Bible tells us a real easy way for our sins to be forgiven. And when our sins are forgiven, it's based on the fact that Jesus died for us. And when your sins are forgiven, the Bible says you are secured when you're living faithful to God. That is, you have a reservation in heaven waiting on you. And you can be set and ready to go and be with him forever. So if you need to make a change to make that a reality in your life, maybe you've struggled with this, uh, this back and forth idea of falling from grace and being right with God and falling from grace and being right with God. And you say, you know what? I want to just determine tonight I'm going to live, walk in the light as he is in the light, and be faithful to God today. If you need to make something right with God, if you need to obey the gospel plan of salvation, we're going to sing this song. Um, I really love this as an invitation. This is a great choice, Mike, because it tells us about how Jesus is calling us home. He wants us to come home. He's like the prodigal son's father who's waiting on him to come home. So maybe God's waiting on you to come home, and you need to return to him. Whatever the case is, please come as we stand and sing.